Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast, where we celebrate the transformational powers of endurance sports. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Run Run Live podcast. It sure was nice not to have to do anything over the last couple weeks, last couple weekends, no long runs, no races. I mean, I've been running around as much as ever, but I feel like the pressure's off. That's not quite true. I actually hosted an episode of the Runner's Roundtable podcast last week from my hotel room in Atlanta, where we had a group of Boston runners tell their Boston 2014 stories. And I wasn't sure how it would go because some people aren't good storytellers, but OMG, these folks hit it out of the park. They told some emotionally impactful, wonderful stories. So if you're in Boston or just want a glimpse into the minds of these people and what this year's race meant to people, you should go download that. It's the Runner's Roundtable on iTunes. It's actually hard to find by Googling because Runner's Roundtable brings up a bunch of pictures of furniture. (laughs) There's a brief window in April in New England where spring is in the air but has not yet enforced its will. It's like a great inhaling of breath that will blow in the warmth and chaos of summer. During this interregnum, the trees haven't leafed out, but the flowers and shrubs explode. Crab apples, forsythia, and cherry trees bursting forth with sweet flowers in the cool mornings. The tulips and daffodils and grapey things push up through the hard clay and announce the incoming season. The suburbs are a bustle with men fertilizing lawns and spreading pungent mulch, for it is in this brief window that man has the advantage over chaos. Before the wild grapes snare your perennials, or the wild roses and mesh your daylilies, it's your two-week chance to tear the weeds and beat back the burgeoning wild and establish once again domestic order on the verdant chaos. Yeah, I did some yard work. In the process, I picked up some ticks, or the dog brings them in. Most of the time, I'll strip off my work clothes, throw them in the washer, and take a shower just to make sure I get all the critters off me. But sometimes they get by my defensive vigilance. I had a deer tick in the back of my thigh last week when I woke up on Sunday, and it was dead, so it probably came off the dog. I posted a picture of the bite on Facebook and wanted to thank you all for freaking out about Lyme's disease, like I need more things to be stressed out about. And before you start to lecture me again, I know all about Lyme. It has impacted my family and my friends, and I'm all too aware of the debilitating long-term effects. I recommend the same strategy I used when working in Mexico and in India. Chase everything with four strong drinks, and the parasite, they can never take hold. Besides, you know I'm indestructible. Bacterium can't take me out. It's just something we have to live with up here. But I seriously, I would recommend if you aren't familiar with deer ticks and Lyme disease, you should do a little research. It can change your life and not in a good way if you miss it. I think I'm okay. I'll let you know if I die. It'll make a great story. I might even get into runner's world. 
I didn't travel for a couple of weeks, and as nice as that was, it also meant I managed to stay in one place long enough to get my allergies from the New England pollen, and I was full of phlegm for a week. Didn't really bother me. I just went through all the clinics in the house and then just ended up carrying a roll of toilet paper around with me. I failed miserably in my miracle morning habit the last week uh, traveling in Atlanta. I was up late reading, and with the travel, I couldn't get into the 5 a.m. habit. We'll see if I can turn it around this week. I got an email from Kevin from the Extra Mile Extra Galloway podcast wondering what to do about that mid-afternoon collapse, that sleepiness that happens when you start getting up early. And it's interesting because by getting up a couple hours earlier, you're actually affecting the rhythm of your whole day. And what Hal, the Miracle Morning guy, what he says to do in this situation is to manage your energy through the day with your nutrition. Have a bunch of small, clean meals, like every hour or every couple hours, like super smoothies or raw fruit and nuts and veggies, and spread them out across your day to maintain your energy level. And this gets me when I'm traveling, because you have these large expanses of time where you're fasting, (laughs) basically, and they're broken by large quantities of not-so-great nutrition. If you eat a big lunch, for example, it sucks the energy out of you and your system to digest it all in the afternoon. So the relationship between eating and energy level is something to be mindful of. With the sun coming out, I finally got to ride my old road bike, Fujisan, and it was a blast. But shortly after my ride, I realized that being clipped into the pedals hurt my ankle, so it was a bit of a setback. The stationary bikes in the gym were okay because I'm not clipped in, but pulling up aggressively on the speed plays on Fujisan tweaks it and makes it angry. And I'm going to go visit my orthopedic surgeon next week, Dr. Hester, and see what he thinks it is. I know I'm an active guy, but six months is a long time for something to hurt. Today, we have an important conversation with my old friend and collaborator, Ann Brennan, who had a hard year. And we talk about dealing with stress and depression and doing the things you have to do to stay mentally healthy and to keep your loved ones safe. In section one, I'm going to talk about another tool from business that you can perhaps put to good personal use. And in section two, I'll talk about how to create and manage a recovery phase in your training. It's been a long year. In the pre-industrial era, this time of year was known as the starving time because the new crops weren't in yet. And you would have eaten through all last year's supplies. But you know what they say. If life gives you lemons, use the acidic juice to reveal hidden codes on the back of Revolutionary War documents. It's true. I saw it in a movie. You should really sign on to my email list and get this stuff in your inbox. Rather than basking in safe obscurity, you can declare your allegiance to Run Run Live and get my drivel directly in your inbox. I mean, really. You've made it to 289 episodes and sucked the vital life force out of my narrative for five-plus years. You should subscribe or at least join the Run, Run, Live Facebook group. (laughs) On with the show. Are you hungry? Here's some food for thought. Mapping an organization. For fun and profit, gaining insights from a strategic sales skill. One of the ways to find insights in your life and work is to steal ideas from unrelated disciplines and see if you can apply them. In this article, I'm going to take a strategy from strategic selling 
and see if there might not be an application in other parts of your world. What are the attributes of a strategic selling environment? Well, in the business-to-business world, B2B, many times the buying and selling is a complex process. It's not just you selling a product to a person. It is your organization selling goods and services to another organization. The larger the organization, the more complex the interactions during the sales process. Sometimes you might be selling complex bundles of products and services worth millions of dollars. You are selling these complex products to global organizations. These organizations have thousands of people and billions of dollars in revenue. They have global organizations with multiple competing business units. This makes interactions in the sales process complex or strategic. Got it? Good. One of the first things that an account manager will do in these situations is to create a strategic account plan. Central to the strategic account plan is an organizational chart. And one of the most powerful pieces of intelligence you can have when interacting with another organization is the organizational chart. And yes, I'm talking about names and boxes with lines and arrows showing who reports to whom and what their titles are. But I'm also talking about what you can do with this information and how it guides your interactions within that organization. So why do you care? Well, I propose that the mapping of the organization is a useful tool, not just in a sales engagement, but in any interaction within any organization. For example, what we typically find when we guide an account manager through this process is that they are interacting with someone who has no power, and we can quickly see who they should be interacting with, and this helps them in their approach. Once you have the names, the boxes, and the arrows of the org chart, you can start asking great questions. Where is the power in the organization? This will be the person who has the ability to authorize a purchase or the power to hire or fire or promote. Usually, if you track the lines of power, you will come to a single individual in an organization who has the power. And then you can look for influencers. Who are the people who don't have power directly but influence the decision makers? If you are selling or promoting a project into the organization, you can map out who is your ally and who are your enemies. Typically, when we're assessing an account this way, each person will get a plus sign for positive, a negative sign for negative, and a zero for neutral, and a question mark for we don't know. For the positive people, You try to turn them into coaches who will actively support you and feed you critical information and help you navigate the account. For the negative people, you construct strategies to neutralize them and box them in. For the neutral people, you try to convert them to positive. But by far the most useful information are the question mark people because this tells you what you don't know. And these are your blind spots. And you can create a plan to find out. In this way, the organizational mapping of an organization is an ongoing process of filling in unknown boxes and finding dark corners to shine your flashlight into. You can see how this guides your approach into an organization. I would contend that mapping the organization is applicable to any organization where you have things you want to accomplish. I would suggest to you that within your own organization, you can do the same exercise to define the opportunities and guide your personal career approach. 
Look at where you are in the organization compared to where the power is. See who the influencers are. See where your blind spots are. Test what you learn. How could you use this information? Well, first, even if you choose not to act on any of the information, it will remove blind spots. I've seen many situations where a person is complaining about their direct supervisor when if they just took a minute to map the organization, they'd realize that the supervisor has no power to change anything. In reality, they're wasting their energy working with a middle person who has no authority. I might advise that person to try to establish a communication channel to the person who actually has the power. In the parlance, you might call that flanking the gatekeeper. And there are ways to do this without getting into trouble if you understand the dynamics of the org chart. Or maybe you're trying to sell a project or implement change into your organization internally. I would submit that you could map the organization and see who are your allies and who are your enemies in this endeavor and build strategies to mitigate your risk and increase the odds of your success. And you might say, ha, huh, this is office politics. But information is neither good nor bad. It is only negative if you choose to use it for some devious Machiavellian scheme. You're a good person. You wouldn't do that, right? I would submit that it's better to understand the dynamics of power in your organization, even if you don't do anything with that information. I think just by mapping the organization, any organization, you're going to have aha moments that will justify the effort. Complex organizations are very nuanced. Titles don't always correspond to power. Influencers can be anyone in the organization. It's a fun and interesting chess game, if nothing else, but I think it's something you might want to try. Do it with a colleague or a peer you trust as an exercise and see what you learn about your organization. Mapping the organization is a strategic account management skill from the B2B world that you can potentially use to understand the organizational dynamics of any organization you're involved in. In this way, you can create personal knowledge of how things get done in the organization. You can reduce your risk and increase your odds of success by understanding your environment. So what are some of the other tools from different disciplines that you can bring to bear in other parts of your life? Have you thought about it? I can do anything. I can be anything. I am not afraid. And now for today's featured interview. So I, I can't apologize to the audio. I'm remote. I'm traveling. You caught me at a good time, though, because I'm just pulling out of a rest area. So, oh good. Unless there's unless there's a toll booth coming, I'm I'm set for a while. Okay. So I know it's been a a challenging year, huh? I haven't talked to you in a long time, maybe a year. Yeah, it's been really hard. It's been a uh, yeah, it's been ridiculous actually between. You know, Megan not doing well, and then I had my, you know, ended up on the psych ward, which you know, I never thought it would be me, but but I did, and and it's been a it's been a tough year. But it's it's I went running yesterday, and it was the first time in a long time that I felt, oh, I feel like me. This is what I this is what I used to feel like. So um, it took a long time to get there. Yeah, and I guess you know we we could say we've had challenging years, but you know, there's always somebody who's had a more challenging year, right? Right. Exactly. So. Exactly. I think you've you've got a lot of you've got a lot of the same sickness I do when it comes to uh, running and life in general. Is we we just when we get challenges we try to do more we try to keep busy. 
and just right, keep exactly. pushing through. And I don't know about you, but sometimes that's not always the right choice. No, I think that's what happened to me last year. I, you know, I, I went into the psych ward and they said it was depression and anxiety, and it may have been, I think, anxiety. Um, but the truth is, I think it was a lot of exhaustion because when Megan got sick, instead of stopping and saying, okay, wait a second, let's see, let's take care of this one thing. I sort of took everything on at one time and then continued to do all the stuff I'd been doing. Um, and I think I just pushed myself to a point and I didn't stop and say, oh, this is really hard and this is harder than anything else I've ever dealt with in my life. So I need to approach this a different way. So by July, I think I just run myself really into the ground. So I couldn't handle anything. I couldn't even handle what was going on, much less anything new happening. So, and at the time, but my son was who was at West Point was telling me he wanted to quit West Point, and I think it was just kind of that one last thing that pushed me over the edge where I'm like, I don't know what to do with that information. <laughs> so I think I just had had just had too much. No, I think that's that's a common trigger, right? Because I get the same way. The times when I start to get a, a little blue or a little stressed out, because I'm pretty uh-huh. good at I, I know my body, I know my mind. I'm pretty good at managing that stuff and understanding it, but the times when it starts to get me is when I'm in those high-stress areas, right? I've got a big presentation or two big presentations in a row, or I've got, you know, back-to-back marathons on weekends or or a combination of all those things. That's when it starts to get me. So I think that self-imposed, you have that type A mentality when you're trying to do everything and do it well. Um Right. Not giving yourself a break. It, it comes out somewhere. You can't just put it in the box and close it. Right. I, th- I think that's exactly the case. You just can't, you know, and, and that's what I was doing. Is I really did put myself in a place where everything had to happen and I had to be in charge. And it got to a point, I mean, I, I wrote about this a bit, that it got to a point with my daughter where I was not sleeping at night because I would stand in the door of her room to make sure she was safe. And, I, you know, I... I put it on myself to keep her alive. It's got to be me that keeps her alive. I'm the only way this is going to happen. And I got to a point where people would say to me, they would say, you're doing everything you can. And I would get so angry and I'd say, yes, but if, I, but if I'm wrong, she dies. If I'm wrong, if I don't do everything right, she dies. And finally somebody said to me, you're not in charge. You, you know, she could, she could die tomorrow stepping out, you know, in the, you know, crossing the road to go to the bus. So you're not in charge of this. And when I was finally able to let that go, I think I was finally able to take a little more control of my life and, and stop worrying about you know, everybody else quite as much, which is hard to do when it's your kid. You know, it's yeah, very hard it, to do when you've got to let go of your kid. Yeah, it is. I, there's, uh, there's nothing like that in the world, anybody who has children. But, you know, right. let's, uh, let's, why don't you step back and give us, the, uh, give us a little context of what it is you and I are talking about. Okay, so last year in March, we, we, I guess we'd been talking to my daughter. She'd been saying she was struggling with depression, and then in March it came to, we had five suicides in our school, and the year prior to that, it was, ha- you know, over that past year it had five suicides. So we we're very, very aware of how dangerous it is for a child to be really depressed. And so we had taken her to a pediatrician, and they had said, well, we think she's fine, but we'll put her on this antidepressant. And then by March of last year, the antidepressant had actually made it worse, and she was very, very close to suicide. She had she had uh, contacted her friend and said she was going to commit suicide, and um, so we ended up hospitalizing her, and then spent several months 
hospitalizing and rehospitalizing her um, to the to the point that our whole lives sort of revolved around her her problems and what was going on with her. So it was a, it was a tough year, and it's tough for any parent to have to deal with that. I think, but but you know, when you're also trying to deal with everything else at the same time, it's 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 just too much. You know, people would say take one day at a time, and I'd say or take one problem at a time, and I'm like, but we're not getting one problem at a time. They're all coming at us at one time. So how do we do that? So it was um. It was a situation I, I, you know, obviously feared because we've been dealing with it in our community, but it wasn't one I expected to deal with myself. And then um, you had just come off a very successful training, a couple of seasons, right? I mean, you just done the yeah, Iron Man. Exactly, exactly. And I had, I had been, I, I guess I'd been feeling really good because I'd done the Iron Man. But of course, you know, you go, you do the Iron Man, or you do any race, you know, any big race, and you come out with the, you know, those post-race blues, right? So right. I had gone through a little. I was going through a little bit of a slump where I wasn't training as much as I liked, or you know, I guess definitely wasn't training as much as you train for Iron Man. So it felt like I was, you know, for lack of a better term, like I was a loser. Things were not going the way I wanted them to go, and so I think I'd already had that pressure on myself and already had that bit of a downside for myself personally uh, as I was going into this with her. So it wasn't, I didn't have that base of feeling strong outside of her. Do you know, does does that make sense? Yeah, you didn't have that running to fall back on, which I fully understand. And I think it's, on the other side of this, the thing that we do is, you know, you do things like you do an Ironman, or in my case, you know, you'll do a, a string of qualified marathons, right? And we, right. Forget how one, we forget how wonderful that is, how successful it is, and, and somehow we assume that's the normal. And we forget to celebrate those things and put those things in context as well. Right, exactly, exactly. And it, it is hard. You know, I, I will, once in a while, somebody will remind me of something that happened on that day, and I would think, oh, gosh, that was a great day. And I have to remind myself that that's not, you know, that that was an exceptional situation. Being able to do Ironman, it took, you know, four, it took two years of training, but four intense months of training. Um, it was not the normal. So, yeah, I can go back to a marathon. And at the time, we sort of joked and we were like, oh, well, you know, the marathon, that's easy. But the marathon's never easy. And so you have to remember that even though you're not doing Ironman anymore, doing a marathon's pretty cool. You know, it's a pretty fun thing. Or doing a 10K is pretty cool. And you're pretty exceptional to be, even be able to do a 10K because most people don't go out there and do those things. So instead of comparing myself to most people, I compared myself to what? what I had accomplished with Ironman and wasn't doing that anymore, so I wasn't as good anymore. Right. Uh, yeah, I, like I said, I do, I do the same thing. You can't compare yourself to an avatar yourself. I think that spills over into the community. The great thing about our running community is where we can talk to all these people and we can put a version of ourselves out there that's very impressive, but then we feel like we have to live up to that avatar. Right. I have just figured that out. Yeah, and you talked about that. You've talked about that before, that avatar you create out there. And I sort of got myself to believing that I really didn't have a separate avatar than than who I actually am, that I am who I present myself to be. And to a degree, I am. But the person that I present myself to be, the person I talk about on Answering Commentary, is the person who is supposed to inspire and motivate you to get out there, right? Well, there are days when I don't want to get out there, and I'm not inspired or motivated to get out there. And those aren't the days I write. I don't write about those days. So the person who comes across is this, this highly motivated, highly 
inspirational kind of person who who really wants to get you out there. Whereas some days I just, especially in the past year, I just wanted to curl up on the couch and not move. So right. and then, that then makes you, you feel even worse. Right, and then you feel feel guilty because you're saying, I'm, you know, I this I'm lying to people, right? I'm fake. I'm a fraud. Yeah. I'm a, exactly. I'm a fraud. I mean, last night for dinner, I had pizza, potato chip, and beer. Right. right. And that's not going right. to make it into my blog. Exactly. Exactly. What you have to remember is that every single person that you meet in the community is feeling the exact same way. Even the elites are feeling the exact same way. They're like, this is crazy. I'm a fraud. When's when somebody going to find out, right? Find me out. Right. Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah. yeah it is, it's actually, and that's an interesting point, Chris, because I was thinking when, when Megan came to me originally and said she was depressed, one of the things I said to her is, you know, just so you know, you're not alone. There are a lot, I mean, obviously there have been five suicides at your school. There are a lot of people who have been struggling with depression at your school and you don't, you know, and one of the suicides, I, this is one that was really shocking to us. She was a young lady who was the goalie of the um, lacrosse team. She played, she ran cross country. She was, um, you know, an honor student. She was an incredible young lady and she committed suicide. And I said, so Megan, if you had looked at her before she committed suicide, you wouldn't have guessed that she was depressed. So we're all going through things. We all feel these things, but we put on a different face for other people. And so I give this advice to Megan, but the truth is I don't take my own advice. I haven't listened to that myself. And you're right, Chris. I think a lot of us are out there feeling like a fraud, feeling like yeah, we, we've said we're an Ironman. We've said we're a marathoner, and here we are struggling to get off the couch. So it, it's um, hard to, to face that and remember that other people are out there with you. Right. And the other blog that you wrote that resonates with me, because you know I'm a frequent flyer, was to uh, to put the air mask on yourself first. Because right. unless you do that, you can't help anybody. Right. Exactly. And I think that was a real lesson for me last year because that's exactly what I didn't do. When Megan got sick, I stopped taking care of myself. And so she was – she really went down in March. That was when everything really went to hell in a handbasket. Um, and by July, I was, I ended up calling a, um, an emergency psychiatrist and said, I'm going to jump off the Bay Bridge. That's what I'm going to do today. And so I was hospitalized immediately. And, and I really meant it. I was, I didn't know what else to do. That's, that's how down I had gotten. I'd gotten to a point where I didn't think I could take another step in this life and, and get through it. Um, and I think it was all because I stopped. I didn't want, when she got sick, I was afraid of telling anybody how sad it made me or how scared it made me or how angry it made me. Any of those things I didn't want to admit because I didn't want them to think I was trying to take anything away from her. I didn't want to take any attention away from her. So I didn't tell anybody. I didn't talk to anybody about it. And I didn't take care of myself in the process. And so I just kept spiraling further and further into a hole and kept it to myself. And I said to Blaze after when I ended up in the hospital, because he was completely shocked, I said, I tried to tell you. And he says, when? And I said, well, the other day I told you I was having a hard time. <laughs> and he said, well, a hard, a hard time and jumping off the Bay Bridge are two different things. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I guess they are. <laughs> but, I mean, that's it. That's the extent. That's how far I went. But I just couldn't even say, I'm really, really struggling. I really need help. Instead, I just said, I'm having a hard time here. <laughs> so, 
it was it was a, a very difficult year. It was a very difficult year, and I really did not take care of myself. But I am doing that now. I, I think the other thing people tend to think if they're having a good year, that it's like a straight line. It's going to go on forever. Whereas life is full of these cycles, right? You're going to have down, you're going to have up, you're going to have down, you're going to have up. And you need to be right. able to realize that you really only control a part of that. You, you, can, right. you can influence it, but you can't control it. That's the way I put it. You can influence it. And it's, and it's your responsibility, your accountability to influence it, but you can't control it. Right, exactly. And, you know, and you've probably experienced this as well. When you're the, a type A personality, you want everything to go a certain way, and you do try to control it. And a lot of times, as a mom especially, I do try to control it. I control, even though I give my children a lot of independence, I lead them in a way that I kind of expect their lives to go. And so when this happened with Megan and I had no control over it, there was nothing I could do to get inside her brain and help her. And there, I mean, there was just nothing I could do to make her better. That was the worst feeling to, to have and to, and to be able to, you know, finally relinquish that control and say, really, even when I think I'm in control, I'm not. So it's letting, letting that go in something that's this big was, that was hard. That was probably the hardest thing I've ever had to do is just say, I can't control it. I just got to kind of hand it over. And that's where I'm, I'm not a hugely religious person. I don't talk about it a whole lot, but it is where religion comes in for me is I was able to say, okay, God, I'm going to hand this one to you. (laughs) You know, I know you love my daughter more than I do even. And so I'm going to let you take care of her right now. And I was able to let go a little bit that way. That helped. Yeah. And I think one of the things I, I learned from from reading some of the stuff that you wrote this year, was, you know, people are, people have a, a weird understanding of depression where you'd see responses from people like, hey, so you're sad, just cheer up. You know, here, do these things, do these things to get happy again. Like, choose like, to be happy, yes. Yeah, choose to be happy. Like, it's like fixing the roof. Right, right. That, yeah, it's, and it's hard to understand even when you're in the middle of it. And even if you've dealt with depression yourself, it's really, really hard to to deal with somebody else who's going through it because you, you can't control how they feel and you can't understand how they feel, especially when it's something chemical. When it's something um, – well, I'll give you an, uh, an example. If, uh, several years ago, in between my first child and my second child, I had a miscarriage. Um, and I was, for about two months, I really struggled. I was just really down. And, and I had a friend literally say to me, you need to just get over this. And that was like, that was a tangible thing. She could see, you know, you've just lost a baby. Oh, so, of course, you're sad. That was a tangible thing that she could see, and still she couldn't understand it. So when it's something you don't understand, when nothing has happened but the person is terribly sad, it's really hard for anybody else to grasp why that might be, so, and especially if they haven't dealt with it themselves, especially if they have never gone through something like it. They can't. They don't know what to do with it, and therefore they don't know they they don't know how they're supposed to react, and they usually react poorly, unfortunately. So how does this? How does this? Um, what's the interchange between this and our endurance sports addiction? <laughs> what's the interchange there? You know, I don't know. I think it's for for me. Gosh, Chris, I don't know. It's been a hard year for me to figure. Hmm. It's been a hard year for me to figure out. I'll tell you this: when I 
So July was, I went in the hospital. I went in the hospital again in September because I had a, a relapse. And then, so I hadn't run much in between those two things, right? I hadn't, I hadn't run much at all because I'd been in the hospital. I'd been on new medications. I was trying to figure it all out. And then in September and October, I ran a couple of times, maybe five times here, five, I mean, five miles here, five miles there. And then on the Sunday before the Marine Corps Marathon, I went out and I ran seven miles. And I had a great run. And I came home and I said to Blaze, hey, I'm going to run the Marine Corps Marathon. And he said, but you haven't trained for it. And I said, yeah, but I've done a lot of marathons, so I think I can do it. So he was really nervous. I go out. I run the marathon. I had a great time. I didn't run fast at all. So as I, you know, as I've gone through this, I think I keep looking back to that and thinking, you know what, I can I can decide, you know, yes, I can't, I know I can't decide whether I want to be happy or not, but I can start doing things like that and try to believe in myself a little bit at a time, even if it comes sporadically, even if it comes that today I know I can run eight miles or tomorrow I know I can run a marathon, when, whatever it is, having that little bit, having the, that knowledge that I have, that strength within me to go out and run a marathon on, you know, a week's notice, that's. That's been a huge thing. That's been very helpful. And and when I am able to remember, when I am able to remember that feeling of doing that Ironman and saying to Blaze in the middle of it when I got off the bike, this was the best day ever. That's like if I can remember those things, then it does make each day a little bit easier. But it, but you have to do it just like you do the race. You have to take it one bite, one bite at a time or one step at a time. Otherwise, you just can't get through it all. So for people who are listening who might have kids, what are the, the triggers or the, uh, or the signs that they should be looking for? Well, I mean, one thing is to keep, you know, your line of communication open with them and, and to make sure that they know that you're aware that, that depression exists out there in teenagers. So I, I think that's huge. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, I haven't really revealed this much, but Megan is a uh, self-harmer. And which means, you know, she cuts herself. And so it should have been a pretty big trigger, you know, pretty big guess for me to see that she's wearing these. Um, she always wears jackets, always wears them all summer long, um, refused to wear a bathing suit. Those things should have been, should have led me to believe that something was going on with her. And they just didn't. Um, but she was hiding things. And that was a, that was a big part. She slept a whole lot more. And I know teenagers sleep a lot. So it's hard to kind of guess that, but she was sleeping a lot more. She was, well, sleeping a lot more during the day, but not sleeping much at night. And that had never happened before. So I would wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and she'd be in her room on her computer. Um, so there, yeah, there are a lot of those sorts of things where you think, okay, well, that's different than she did yesterday. But that could be, you know, it could be a lot of things. It could be drugs. It could be, you know, just that she's got something going on with friends and she's upset. But I think that's it. It's to kind of pay attention to everything they're doing and to ask a lot of questions. And and I have to say, I know it's not a popular view, but I really, really believe that we've got to be much more involved in their lives. And, you know, I my kids know they can't change the password on their phone. They've got to be able to hand me their phone at any point. And that was a huge, that was a huge thing for me because had I not looked at her phone, and seeing this message to her friend, I wouldn't have known just how depressed she was. Because I had said to her, I know you're depressed, but are you are you contemplating suicide? And she said, no, Mom, I would never do that. But meanwhile, she's already got a plan laid out. She already knew what she was going to do. 
and she was she was ready to do it. And if I hadn't found, if I hadn't looked at her phone, if I hadn't snooped, which isn't, you know, isn't the popular view of parenting. But if I hadn't snooped, I wouldn't have found it, and we wouldn't have been, you know, we may have lost her. So I, you know, whether it's the right thing to do or not, I think it was the right thing in this situation. So I think that's a that's a big part of it. Is sometimes being a parent is not easy, and sometimes we have to make the work, the decision that we think is not the right one, but it's, but it's in order to help them. So I think that was a big part of it. So right. another thing is going, Chris, I do have to say this. If you have, if you think something's wrong with your child, don't go to your pediatrician, go and see a mental health provider because the pediatricians really don't have a clue what's going on. They don't, they don't know how to handle mental health. So go to see a, a um, go to see a mental health provider. A specialist. Exactly, a specialist, because our pediatrician, if I told you what she did and how bad she messed it up, it, it's infuriating because she just she acted like she knew what she was doing and she put us in a position where we, we really could have lost our daughter. We yeah. just got lucky. Well, let's, uh, let's hope this year's better, huh? I'm looking forward to a good year. My calendar changes in April at the Boston Marathon, so I'm looking forward to a fresh calendar. I think you know. I think that's exactly it for both of us, Chris. We need we need some some looking up, and we've got a lot of that going on here, you know, now. So I'm I'm hoping it's going to start looking up. We I actually picked Megan up on uh, Wednesday. I'm driving up Tuesday. I'll pick her up on Wednesday, um, and I think it's going to be a, a better year for all of us now. That's great. So, well, thank you. Uh, I'm running again. <laughs> yeah, I'm running again too. Well, I'm not running right now, but I have a plan. Good. I feel good about running. For the uh, last two or three months, it's been a bit of a chore, um, but I'm exactly. feeling better about it. I'm feeling better about you know, the I idea of running. And I think that's key, isn't it? It's important. You know, sometimes we go through these phases where it's work, but sometimes you just need it to be fun. Yeah. you got to get back to why you love doing it, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. All right. I'm going to let you go and get back to okay, driving. Chris. All right. Thanks right. so much. Have a safe trip. All right. Thank bye-bye. you. Bye-bye. Hitch up your tights because now we're going to talk tips and tricks for endurance sports. The recovery phase as part of your training discipline, the work of recovery. In April, I wrapped up a year-long campaign that included 13 months of 13 marathons, among other things. After a long campaign or hard race or anything that has taken a lot out of you, you need to rest and recover. But it's important to understand the difference between recovery and rest. There is some resting involved, but recovery is an active phase of your training discipline that needs to be worked with the same attention as any other training phase. There is both mental recovery and physical recovery involved, and each takes its own form. You don't want to just throw your shoes in the corner and put your feet up for a month. If you do that, you'll set yourself back and set yourself up for the risk of an injury when you start training again. So how do you manage your recovery like a training discipline? First, it's important to have a clear future. In other words, to know what your plans are. They don't have to be set in stone, but you should have some goals for your next campaign. What you are planning to tackle will dictate some of the activities in your recovery. Having a clear future will allow your brain a chance to rest and not have to think about what should I do next. 
When you're setting your next goal, you know, it needs to be something that stretches you. It needs to be something compelling with some unknown to it. It needs to be a bit like entering a dark room where you really don't know what you're in for, and it scares and excites you. If it's a repeat of something you've already done, it won't get your juices running. It won't be compelling. When you think you know what that next goal is, tell someone or multiple someones. In this way, you're making yourself accountable. With a clear future, a compelling goal, and accountability, now you are ready to get to work on recovery. And the recovery is now contextualized as preparation for your next big thing. When you come out of a grueling event or a series of events, the first step is assessment. What hurts? Where did you feel the weakness and breakdowns when you were competing? Do a self-assessment and list out those things that you think need rehabilitation or strengthening. Once you have your self-assessment, share it with your coach or even get a consult from an the appropriate physio or medico to see if your assessment is right. You don't want to be treating what you think is a sore ligament if it's actually a stress fracture. In my case, I have a long list of aches and pains coming off this year of continuous racing that I never had a chance to let heal. I've got ankle pain. I've got back pain. In the last half dozen marathons, my pace was very slow, so I have no speed. My quads were spasming at the end of these races, so I know there's something going on there. And my mechanics never quite recovered from the plantar fasciitis, and it feels like I'm still running with a limp. So what's my next big goal? Well, tentatively, I'd like to be in position to train for and run a qualifying marathon at the end of the summer or in the fall. And you might say, how was that a stretch goal for you, Chris? Well, the last qualifying time I ran was Boston in 2011. Now, I think I can do it but I'm not sure, and frankly, it pisses me off not to be able to do it, so therefore the goal is compelling for me. I've given myself May as a recovery month. I may go visit my orthopedic surgeon just to get his opinion and some directional guidance on the ankle and my plantar fasciitis. Other than assessment and rest, what else do I need to do before I can ramp up my training? In the recovery phase of training, what you don't do is as important as what you do do. I have to give my ankle, my legs, a chance to heal. So I'm not running. And this sounds easy, but on a beautiful spring day, when the trails are beckoning, it takes some discipline not to go run an easy 5K in the woods with the dog. If you have nagging injuries, you need to let them rest. Most soft tissue injuries, tendonitis, muscle strains, or even just exhaustion from overtraining and overracing, they'll heal up in two to three weeks. Chronic injuries may take six weeks or even months. You have to budget enough time to heal. Don't rush it. You won't be able to sustain the quality training you need if you're not healthy. You're still going to be training five to seven days a week. It's just going to be focused differently. You'll have a training plan for the recovery phase. You will focus these days of training on recovery activities. I believe in active recovery. It's absolutely possible to speed up the healing process with appropriate self-therapy. For your injuries or weaknesses, find out what the appropriate and effective stretching and exercises are to augment that recovery. You are going to replace some of the time you spent training with recovery therapy. For example, if you've got ITB or Achilles problems, you can stretch and foam roll those as part of your structured training. Instead of hill repeats, maybe you'll do 20 minutes of deep stretching and self-massage. 
If you know you have hip pain due to psoas tightness at the end of every hard campaign, why not start working on it now with the appropriate strength and flexibility exercises so that when you start your campaign, you're ready. You also need to keep your cardio up. Even if you're not running, you may be able to elliptical or bike or swim. Find out what works for you and get at least an hour of easy, high RPM, low heart rate cardio in. I'd recommend three times a week. What am I doing for my plethora of aches and pains and weaknesses? Well, for the ankle, I'm working in a set of ankle strengthening exercises a few times a week. You can get these specific rehab exercises from your coach from the community, or even from YouTube. Everything is on YouTube. Just be careful. Caveat emptor. Make sure what you're doing is appropriate for you. I'm also mixing in some brief, easy, barefoot form drills to strengthen my feet and work on my form and cadence. I'm doing a full stretch on most days that focuses on the legs, Achilles, quads, hamstrings, the whole chain. And additionally, I'm doing some breathing meditation and a specific kung fu routine for back and quad stretches. Yeah, YouTube again. I'm doing core workouts to get my strength back in my core, and this will help my back, my form, and my ability to train when I get started again. If my ankle wasn't buggered, I'd be doing leg strength workouts, but that will have to wait. I'm not just mindlessly plunging ahead into the next task, into the next training cycle. I'm giving myself some time to breathe and reflect. I'm trying some new things that will allow me to grow mentally and physically during the recovery phase. Many times, when you are in the heat of battle, during that last hard training cycle or that race, you make decisions that are colored by the stressed out position you are in at that point in time. Now, right after a marathon is not the place to decide if you're going to run another marathon. Give yourself some space in recovery to fall back in love with your sport and your goals. You have a choice. Don't mindlessly start cranking away at the next training cycle. Take a recovery phase. On the one hand, it should have the discipline and training and persistence of any other training phase. On the other, it should allow you space to recover and grow. A well-executed recovery phase will put you in the mental and physical position to dive into your next big challenge. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep. But I have promises to keep, and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. A few weeks ago, we talked about the concept of white space in our lives and how to leave enough room in your busy existence, your busy schedule for some you time. A few months back, we talked about the Gaelic concept of thin places where physical or mental places that the margin between you and the other world was thin. And as I was working with the 5 a.m. miracle morning routine, I came to think of it as a sacred place, a place in time that's sacred to me, a place where it's all about me and I'm free. I am unencumbered from expectation and deliveries, much like when I go running in the woods, sitting at my desk in my house early in the morning, working through my aspirations and affirmations. It's a sacred place. Having a sacred place is a powerful thing. It is that place or time where you can go and be you. Be holy you. Do you have that sacred place in your life? I found that in my sacred place, 
I drop into a flow state and time passes without me knowing it. Ideas and concepts flow from me. That's worth getting up in the morning for, huh? What's next for me? Still in recovery, still fighting off all my codependent friends who daily have brilliant ideas for difficult races and relays in beautiful places, but I have to be strong. I have to recover. No messing around. I went through my stuff and pulled all the race shirts from the last 13 months that I could find. I gave them to my mom to see if maybe she could fashion a quilt for me, a bit like one of those medieval tapestries that tells the story of an epic battle. And don't forget to go listen to that Runner's Roundtable episode with the Boston Stories. It's quite powerful. And for those of you who might want a safe way to dip your toe into podcasting, it's an open forum just waiting for you to volunteer, like open mic night at the Running Podcast Cafe. And I wasn't joking. I do have a Run Run Live Facebook page that I post stuff to, and you should go join. It's free and it's easy. And I do have an email list that I shoot the shows out to. I've been writing some extra posts in my on my website, Run Run Live, and I may start recording them as a bonus for those of you who are paying attention. So uh, happy Mother's Day, people. Be good to each other. Party on. Cheers. Thanks for listening, folks. I do appreciate your support. Run Run Live is a free service for you because I like writing and telling stories. I also love to meet folks, so feel free to reach out to me at Gmail or any of the other social networking sites. I'm C-Y-K-T Russell, and as you know, that's Chris Yellow King Tom Russell with two S's and two L's. My website is www.runrunlive.com. And most, if not all, of this content is posted out there. If you want the show notes to magically show up in your inbox when I publish a show in a beautiful HTML wrapper, you can subscribe to the mailing list at my site. You can find it there. And it also has all the links to everything and everyone that I talk to and about. Other than that, my friends, thank you for the attention. Do epic stuff. And let me know if I can help. Ciao. Thank you.